Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the tensions building between the U.S. and China, with an emphasis on understanding the context in which China has grown from a Cold War afterthought into a force capable of challenging American hegemony. Clips today are from a TED Talk by Graham Allison, Worldly, The East is a Podcast, Now This World, Vox, Democracy Now!, China Talk, and Economics and Beyond with Rob Johnson. As we saw with this flipping the pyramid of of poverty, China has actually soared. It's meteoric. Former Czech president Václav Havel, I think, put it best. He said, all this has happened so fast, we haven't yet had time to be astonished. To remind myself how astonished I should be, I occasionally look out the window in my office in Cambridge at this bridge, which goes across the Charles River between the Kennedy School and Harvard Business School. In 2012, the state of Massachusetts said they were going to renovate this bridge. It would take two years. In 2014, they said it wasn't finished. Uh, In 2015, they said it would take one more year. In 2015, they said it's not finished. We're not going to tell you when it's going to be finished. (laughs) Finally, last year, it was finished three times over budget. Now, compare this to a similar bridge that I drove across last month in Beijing. It's called the Senyan Bridge. In 2015, the Chinese decided they wanted to renovate that bridge. It actually has twice as many lanes of traffic. How long did it take for them to complete the project? What do you bet? The answer is 43 hours. Now, of course, that couldn't happen in New York. Yes. Okay. Behind this speed and execution is a purpose-driven leader and a government that works. The most ambitious and most competent leader on the international stage today is China's President Xi Jinping. And he's made no secret about what he wants. As he said when he became president six years ago, his goal is to make China great again. (laughs) A banner he raised long before Donald Trump picked up a version of this. To that end, Xi Jinping has announced specific targets for specific dates. 2025, 2035, 2049. By 2025, China means to be the dominant power in the major market in 10 leading technologies, including driverless cars, robots, artificial intelligence, quantum computing. By 2035, China means to be the innovation leader across all the advanced technologies. And by 2049, which is the 100th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic, China means to be unambiguously number one, including, as Xi Jinping, an army that he calls, quote, fight and win. So these are audacious goals, but as you can see, China's already well on its way to these objectives. And we should remember how fast our world is changing. 30 years ago, the World Wide Web had not yet even been invented. Who feel the impact of this rise of China most directly? Obviously, the current number one. As China gets bigger and stronger and richer, technologically more advanced, it will inevitably bump up against American positions and prerogatives. 
Now, for red-blooded Americans, and especially for red-necked Americans like me, I'm from North Carolina, there's something wrong with this picture. Okay? The USA means number one. That's who we are. But again, to repeat, brute facts are hard to ignore. Four years ago, Senator John McCain asked me to testify about this to his Senate Foreign Relations, or Senate Armed Services Committee. And uh, so I made for them a chart uh, that you can see that said, compare the U.S. and China to kids on opposite ends of a seesaw on a playground, each represented by the size of their economy. As late as 2004, China was just half our size. By 2014, its GDP was equal to ours. And on the current trajectory, by 2024, it'll be half again larger. The consequences of this tectonic change will be felt everywhere. For example, in the current trade conflict, China's already the number one trading partner of all the major Asian countries. Which brings us back to our Greek historian. Harvard's Thucydides Trap Case File has reviewed the last 500 years of history and found 16 cases in which a rising power threatened to displace a ruling power. Twelve of these ended in war. And the tragedy of this is that in very few of these did either of the protagonists want a war. Few of these wars were initiated by either the rising power or the ruling power. So how does this work? What happens is a third party's provocation forces one or the other to react, and that sets in motion a spiral which drags the two somewhere they don't want to go. If that seems crazy, it is, but it's life. Remember World War I. The provocation in that case was the assassination of a second-level figure, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, which then led the Austro-Hungarian emperor to issue an ultimatum to Serbia. They dragged in the various allies. Within two months, all of Europe was at war. So finally, we conclude again with the most consequential question, the question that will have the gravest consequences for the rest of our lives. Are Americans and Chinese going to let the forces of history drive us to a war that would be catastrophic for both? Or can we summon the imagination and courage to find a way to survive together? Especially in Washington, it's become this kind of catchphrase that is being used, especially in the Pentagon, but State Department, think tanks, you can't really throw a rock without hitting someone talking about great power competition. Also, please don't throw rocks at people. It's not nice. But but your question of what it actually means, uh, what is the definition, is kind of part of the problem um, that a lot of people don't take the time to really define in a deep way what it's supposed to mean. But in a kind of general sense, it means competition on the international stage between great powers. In particular, like you said, it's usually used to describe the kind of global sort of framework in international relations through which U.S. policymaking is being seen right now. And it's primarily used to talk about U.S. and China and, like you said, to some degree with Russia. The idea here is that there was the Cold War with the U.S. and the Soviet Union as these two poles who were battling it out on the world stage. When that ended, we entered this fuzzy 
era of not really having any kind of cohesive framework to understand the world. There was a lot of talk about unipolarity, meaning one pole, meaning the United States being the dominant superpower. Then we had the war on terror as this kind of organizing framework after 9-11, where you see the global war on terror and focus on counterterrorism, kind of a smaller operations around the world. And it wasn't so much focused on this kind of broader grand strategy among world powers. And so now we're back to this kind of idea of this great power competition between U.S. and China with a rising China now coming to challenge the U.S. in all kinds of ways, militarily, economically, now diplomatically. And so that's a framework that people are talking about, that this is the way that the world is organized now. And that's how U.S. foreign policy needs to be oriented. That's the argument, right, that we need to focus on things like our defense spending to make sure that we match and not even match, but that we maintain dominance over China's military. Things like d diplomatic efforts to make sure that China isn't expanding its influence all over the world and challenging the U.S., you know, economic trade, kind of everything being put under this framework. That's the kind of general definition, I guess I would put it out there. No, absolutely. And I guess I would add it is a bit more defined, I think, you're than at least you believe. And I totally get why you feel it's a nebulous concept because it, it, it is a nebulous concept. But it is really clearly meant to say two things. One, the era of like small wars, right? The war on terror, as you said, Jen, is over. And it is meant to say that the entirety of the U.S. system, foreign policy apparatus, national security apparatus, is really geared towards two nations, China and Russia. And like, where, where I agree that there's even more, there's a lack of definition is, okay, but then what? So you say you- Yeah, that's kind of what I mean. You're right. And there we're in agreement. I don't know what it actually implies other than China, Russia, bad. Now, I get it from like a messaging and political standpoint to, to call it this. If you spend any time in, in Washington or, or covering this stuff, you'll find that very, people very much like little monikers and acronyms, and especially if you cover the Pentagon for a while. <laughs> um, oh, God, the acronyms at the Pentagon. Oh, God. It's bad, right? Nightmares. <laughs> but like when you're trying to get um, a sprawling government in line with like the thing you're trying to get them to get them to focus on something, you need a little pithy bumper sticker like this. And great power competition works that way. It also works for just the regular voter who isn't paying attention to almost anything, understandably. But if they hear what are we doing about China or Russia or whatever, you hear great power competition. And even if you're not familiar with these topics, you get at least an idea in your head as to what all this means. So that matters, at least from a communication standpoint. But from the political standpoint, as we were alluding to, I, I don't know what it, it really implies other than fight China and Russia. And that's dangerous because, especially when competition is the buzzword, it could lead to ruin. It could lead any leader or any government employee to think, oh, this means fight at all costs. There's no real clear goal here. And so the mind could run a bit wild. And that's the danger, I think, of when you use pity things like this, despite their the pros that I discussed, the cons are also quite bad. Yeah, I think that's an important piece, too. But yeah, right. I think it's important to drill down on the competition half. And I want to come back to the great power half of the phrasing, because competition can mean lots of different things. And ultimately, it depends on what you're competing over, right? Like in its most obvious sense, great power competition refers to competition over security and balance of power, right? So who's stronger where and in what ways can you prevent your enemy from getting some kind of military foothold or territorial control or something like that? But 
like, honestly, that is not the biggest axis of conflict right now between the United States and either China or Russia. There are territorial concerns in Eastern Europe and in places like the South China Sea, where uh, the sides are coming into conflict. There are concerns about balance of power with respect to the strength of the NATO alliance and China's increasing ability, arguably increasing ability to threaten Taiwan, depending on who you're talking to. But it, it strikes me that a lot of the competition, like the places in which these countries are trying to vie for influence often happens in the political, diplomatic, and economic realms. So they're competing over things like 5G placements in different countries, like whose companies get to place 5G. They're competing over trade linkages between uh, Germany and Russia. They're competing over which country looks the best after the the COVID-19 crisis with the United States and and. China blaming each other for the pandemic spread and Russia coming out with a vaccine and there being competition over whether or not Russia's vaccine is any good or not. Turns out it probably is. And these, this is a different kind of competition than is normally conceptualized when people talk about great power competition, right? The phrase really, when you talk to IR scholars or you look at the literature, it most classically refers to like 19th century style multipolarity, which means lots of different powerful countries competing over influence. That often breaks down and turns into wars and conflicts over territory and over security. And so the balance of power system that you had in mid-19th century Europe in particular is like the classic example of great power competition. So is European colonialism in Africa, right, with lots of different kinds of countries trying to scramble for control over different parcels of land in order to maximize their influence with respect to each other. But now with war not looming in the immediate term, it seems like a lot of this competition is happening in different spheres, which means you need to think about different objectives. What is the point of competing over 5G? What is the point of the messaging war over COVID-19? And that's where I find a lot of the competition side conversation tends to break down. There's this sense that we are like, you're supposed to win a competition, right? You want to be better than the other side, but nobody is super clear on what ordinary people in the United States or the rest of the world gain from a U.S. win in something like the competition over over 5G and that, that, that kind of thing. It's just often disconnected from broader strategic objectives and just set in terms of we have to win because we have to win. I mean, I, I think it's somewhat clear what those objectives are. It is, at least from the U.S. standpoint, if China runs technology, if it runs the economy, if it is the best at all these things, they write the rules of the world and we don't. And that doesn't make a lot of American policymakers feel good and a lot of our allies feel good, right? They've enjoyed a U.S. underwritten global system since 1945-ish. So like the notion that you're going to now have an autocratic country be in charge of the things that let our cell phones run and our computers run uh, and global economic rules and, and the future technologies that we'll all be using, that just doesn't sound good and it, it doesn't make people feel good and they worry that the world would be in a worse place if that were to happen. And that, I think, is if we you know dig really beneath the surface of what great power competition is, this is if we don't push back on China and Russia and make sure that America doesn't stay number one, the world's going to hell. And that's really the messaging here it, in every sphere. Right. And so this is why you see people say, well, this really is a new Cold War with China. And we'll mention Russia in a bit. I have my very big disagreements with that for, for no other reason than like China's integrated into the global economy way more than the Soviet Union was. But that, I think, is the issue. And so 
great power competition is meant to imply like this is a moment where the U.S. needs to stand up and 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 defend itself and stay the number one power and make changes to outcompete Russia and China in multiple facets. Otherwise, there will be a new world, uh, a new global order, et cetera, et cetera. I want to ask you about the term century of humiliation and how and like what that means, because I, I discovered it long ago. I actually read some horrible kind of anti-China memoir by a Western journalist here. Her name is Jan Wong. I don't know if she's known outside of Canada, but yeah, I didn't know it back then, but it's kind of just like lib kind of like, oh, I missed the good old days before the before the revolution. I didn't recognize it then. I was like in high school. I didn't know any better. But one of the sort of images that I had is, but I don't know if I learned about it there, but sometime around there, I learned about century of humiliation. And I never, it's always been a phrase that stuck with me because it's, it's, and this is kind of orientalist reading too, to say this, but the, I, when I see sort of China, whatever it does in a strategic, like geostrategic sort of outreach to the world or whatever, it's flexing. I just think in the back of my head, century of humiliation. Like these are like the grandchildren of people who saw a century or saw the tail end of that century. Like the living memory of colonialism is still basically alive, right? In China, 49, there's still people who are alive from 49, probably tens of millions of people actually. So I would love to hear you riff about what that means. Even uh, what's the word in Chinese? Like, where does it come from? Like, I should have given you time to prepare this, but it's always something that I've wanted to learn about. Yeah, okay, so the, the term century of humiliation referred to the period from 1840s, the start of First Opium War, to the, the founding of People's Republic, 1949. So it's almost exactly 100 years. And this late 19th century and early 20th century is years to be a person of Chinese ancestry, because Prior to that, for the longest time, even for millennium, China had been the center for civilization in East Asia. I mean, there was there's like a, a China-centered East Asian civilization where, you know, like the country, neighboring countries like Japan, Korea, and Vietnam borrow extensively from the Chinese culture and adopt it to their own. And so... From that position, it come the, the catastrophic Opium War, which is only a beginning. And where before, whereas before China saw themselves, uh, the Chinese see themselves as like the inheritor of this thousand-year-old unbroken line of civilization. And suddenly to be subjugated uh, by the power of gunboats to yeah. humiliating... Yeah. Treaty. So, for example, like now Hong Kong is the news. I mean, the Hong Kong came into being because British, through the first Opium War, defeated China uh, because British wants to sell opium to China. Uh, and when China outlaws opium sales, Brit the, the opium smugglers of Britain, they lobby the British parliament and British government to launch a war, a drug war against China forced China to accept the opium trade. 
and uh, a defeated China had to cede Hong Kong Island to Britain. And that's how the, the history of colonial Hong Kong came about. And, and the, like I said, the Opium War was only a beginning. I mean, the, that was the first Opium War. And, and, and 10, 20 years later, there was a second Opium War in 1860. And, it, and it's nonstop. And after that, there was a Sino-French War in 1884. And then the first Sino-Japanese War in 1894. That's when the Japan itself westernized and joined the imperialist club. And, and so it was this nonstop pounding by Western powers. And then come 1900, the Boxer Rebellion, when the so-called eight allied nations, that's Britain, France, Russia, United States, Japan, Austria-Hungary, Germany, how I'm coming to seven, and Italy. So eight allied nations, mostly Western powers, just Western powers plus Japan. And they stormed the Chinese capital, Beijing, captured the Forbidden City. And this ostensibly to protect foreign interests in China. I mean, the, the reason there's foreign interests in China is because prior, the after the Opium War, the imperialist power have imposed a series of unequal treaties in China. So they carve out, all, in addition to grab places like Hong Kong, they carve out these so-called foreign concessions in places like Shanghai. So Shanghai was a divided, segregated city. It was, there was a China, Chinatown, there was a Chinese part of Shanghai, and there's a foreigner part of Shanghai, you know, so-called international concession that was formed by merger of the British and U.S. and American concession. And then there's a separate French concession. So on these concessions, foreigners do not answer to Chinese law. They're governed by their own laws. They imported their own police. The British actually imported the Sikh police from India to police the Shanghai International Settlement. And it's not only limited to Shanghai. It's as China loses more wars, more cities are forced to open up. So my hometown, Chongqing, which is not on the coast at all, is about 2,500 kilometers up the Yangtze River, like in the very heartland of China. Now, Chongqing was also forced to be open and forced to have hosts like foreign concessions. And in places like Wuhan, now Wuhan is famous because... (laughs) Poor Wuhan. Everyone's going to talk about the virus for the next 50 years. They're going to talk about Wuhan. All the Chinese people in other provinces are going to make fun of the Wuhan people. They're going to be like, ha ha, you were the virus people. It's going to be very annoying for them and their children and grandchildren. Yeah, but, well, I mean, finally Wuhan got its name recognition. <laughs> uh, but, but Wuhan, you know, was also had, was forced to host foreign concessions. So, so basically, these are series of, the foreigners carve up the best real estate in town, right? All the waterfront property. And they, there are, even outside of the foreign concessions, the foreigners still exempt from the Chinese laws. If they kill somebody, if they kill a Chinese person, they cannot be tried under the Chinese justice because, according to the British, you know the Chinese justice system is wanton and, and cruel. Like we can't have that. So they, the foreigners, are only answerable to their own police and their own set of laws in China. And on top of that, China had to pay a huge uh, war indemnities to these imperialist power each time China got defeated. So British received a huge amount of silver 
Uh, so did Japan. So in fact, when Japan defeated China in the first Sino-Japanese War in 1894-1895, the amount of silver that Japan received from China, the silver payment, was equivalent of six years of Japanese government revenue. And, and then you know, Japan reinvested that money into military buildup and to build up by battleships and, and eventually allow them to defeat Russia in, in Russo-Japanese War, which, by the way, was fought on the Chinese soil. So most of the Russo-Japanese War, aside from the famous battle Tsushima, which was fought on the Tsushima Strait between Korea and Japan, the, all the land battles was fought in Manchuria, northeast China. Whereas like Chinese themselves become helpless bystanders on their own soil. And, and, they, and this period in China was often referred to as like the semi-colonial period because you know, China was not uh, governed as a full colony, for example, India. But this is something that Iran shares too with China too, Col- dominated but never colonized. Yes. And so it's definitely dominated. And, and the foreigner, the, the Westerners in enjoy immense privileges, which some of them <laughs> enjoy up until today. And against this background, against this background of humiliation and defeat, interestingly, you know, in the West, there's a corresponding development of Sinophobia. So just as, you know, <laughs> the Western armies are in China brutalizing the population, in the Western pop- popular imagination, Right, I, I think it's a function as sort sort of guilty conscience that these these Chinamen are out to get revenge, right? So we, that's why we have a caricature like Doctor Fu Manchu, which is popularized by a guy who never been to China, <laughs> doesn't know any Chinese. So he wrote this series of high fantasy novels, basically about this evil Chinese uh, genius trying to take over the world, trying to dominate the the Western world, and and threaten the white civilization, right? Especially white women. <laughs> and, and, and it was made into a series of Hollywood films. So this was against the backdrop of boxer rebellion when the foreign armies were actually in China fighting and looting. I've been suggesting the new show Unfucking the Republic for a little while now. You may have heard me talk about it. Soon though, you're gonna get to hear me talk on it. Not that I'm the most exciting thing about the upcoming episode. The host of the show told me that he sees this episode coming up as his magnum opus, which I hope isn't true because the show really just got started and there are a lot of years of content to fill to have peaked so early. But anyway, you get the sense of how he feels about what he's working on. So he asked Amanda and me to record a couple of guest spots for the show. And again, we shouldn't be the most exciting thing about the show, but maybe the sugar on top for you to hear us in a new and interesting context. From the beginning of the run of the show, Unfucking the Republic has made it abundantly clear that they were going to make Milton Friedman their nemesis. And if that name isn't familiar to you at all, or even if it is familiar, but you could stand to know more about him, you should be subscribing to the show now and setting all of the auto downloads and notification bell settings and all of that so you can hear this deep dive on the man himself when it's released. You know how most of our conversations devolve into lamenting the 
strangling hold of neoliberalism on our sad and broken society, well, Milton Friedman is the one who tied the f***ing noose. So find Unfucking the Republic wherever you get your podcast by searching for UNFTR or by clicking through on the link in our show notes. And once you hear all the love, care, and swearing that goes into each episode, buy the team a coffee. China has invested billions of dollars into the continent of Africa to build massive infrastructure projects. Much of this infrastructure is part of China's Belt and Road Initiative, an estimated $1 trillion plan to connect the country to trade routes all over the world. African leaders like Kenya's Uhuru Kenyatta have favorably compared China's investments to earlier projects built by colonial powers. Where the old railway was built by force and violence against the wishes of those whose land it divided, the new railway is built by consent and partnership, both between ourselves and China, and between the governments which will prosper and profit by it. But is China's investment in the continent actually a win-win, as some African and Chinese leaders have said? Or just a new form of colonialism on a continent that's experienced so much of it? In this episode, we're examining China's Belt and Road Initiative and what it might mean for Africa. China's Belt and Road Initiative was only proposed in 2013. The country's first infrastructure project on the African continent was built decades ago. The Tazara Railway, completed in 1976, was built to connect copper mines in Zambia to Dar es Salaam, Tanzania's former capital. The Tazara Railway was the first infrastructure project built on a pan-African scale. China's Belt and Road projects will be designed with this scale in mind, creating new trade routes within and between African countries. In 2017, a Chinese firm opened a railway network in Kenya, connecting its capital Nairobi to the port city of Mombasa. There are already plans to extend this network into South Sudan, Uganda, Rwanda, and Burundi. China, through its public and private sectors, has already loaned about $132 billion to African countries from 2006 to 2017. Many observers worry that African countries won't be able to pay back these debts, placing them in what's been called a, quote, debt trap. The Jubilee Debt Campaign, which campaigns for poor countries' debts to be canceled, estimates that about 20% of debt held by African governments is owed to China, making it the single largest lending nation. For comparison, 35% of African debt is owed to multilateral global institutions like the World Bank. Earlier waves of Chinese firms that invested in Africa made mistakes that caused problems for those countries' governments. Starting in 2005, tens of thousands of workers from China poured into the West African country of Ghana to take advantage of a gold rush. This eventually provoked a local backlash due to accusations of illegal mining, inflaming tensions between Chinese miners and the local government. Many observers have pointed to projects like this as examples of China exploiting Africa for its natural resources through, quote, neo-colonialist behavior. However, 
Other observers contend that the majority of investment from China has largely avoided creating the problems seen in Ghana's gold mines, precisely because resource extraction has not been the main focus of other investments. In fact, the number one industry for Chinese investment has been the service industry, according to IMF economist Wen Jie Chen. She also points out that the countries where China's investment has been largest include those without abundant natural resources, such as Ethiopia and Kenya, in addition to resource-rich countries like Nigeria. Ultimately, African governments may feel that the risk of accumulating debt is outweighed by the benefits of new infrastructure. The China Africa Research Initiative found that roughly 40% of China's loans between 2000 and 2015 went towards paying for energy projects, and another 30% went toward modernizing transportation on the continent. These loans were set at relatively low interest rates and with longer periods of time to pay them back. The Center for Global Development crunched the numbers on debt to China as a result of the Belt and Road Initiative and found that eight of the 71 countries involved in the project were particularly vulnerable to getting caught in a debt trap. Of these eight countries, only one was in Africa, Djibouti, a port country that's also become a military strategic point for China. The other seven countries are in Europe and Asia. Nevertheless, China has denied engaging in debt trap diplomacy. In an attempt to strengthen this collaboration, China has also promised to align its goals for the Belt and Road Initiative with the African Union's own development goals of greater interconnectivity on the continent. However, these promises have yet to be outlined. Ultimately, China's push in Africa may be seeking to increase the country's influence rather than reap financial gains. Its investments are already strengthening China's alliances with African governments to China's benefit. Every African country but Eswatini, formerly known as Swaziland, has cut ties with Taiwan, a prerequisite for diplomatic relations with mainland China. Some observers think that as African countries rise economically, they could actually have the upper hand by the time they negotiate payments back to China. This explains why African leaders have been so confident in calling Chinese investment a win-win. But only time will tell if their long game pans out. There's a new highway in Pakistan and a new rail terminal in Kazakhstan. A seaport in Sri Lanka recently opened, as well as this bridge in rural Laos. What's interesting is that they're all part of one country's project that spans three continents and touches over 60% of the world's population. If you connect the dots, it's not hard to see which country that is. This is China's Belt and Road Initiative, the most ambitious infrastructure project in modern history that's designed to reroute global trade. And it's how China plans to become the world's next superpower. It's 2013, and Chinese President Xi Jinping is giving a speech in Kazakhstan, where he mentions the ancient Silk Road, a network of trade routes that spread goods, ideas, and culture across Europe, the Middle East, and China as far back as 200 BC. He then says, We should take an innovative approach and jointly build an economic belt along the Silk Road. 
A month later, she is in Indonesia. The two sides should work together to build up a new maritime road in the 21st century. These two phrases were the first mentions of Xi's legacy project, the multi-trillion dollar Belt and Road Initiative, or BRI. They're also the two components of the plan. There's an overland economic belt of six corridors that serve as new routes to get goods in and out of China, like this railroad connecting China to London, and these gas pipelines from the Caspian Sea to China, and a high-speed train network in Southeast Asia. Then there's the Maritime Silk Road, a chain of seaports stretching from the South China Sea to Africa that also directs trade to and from China. The BRI also includes oil refineries, industrial parks, power plants, mines, and fiber optic networks, all designed to make it easier for the world to trade with China. So far, over 60 countries have reportedly signed agreements for these projects. And the list is growing because China promotes it as a win-win for everyone. Take, for example, the BRI's flagship project, Pakistan. Like many countries in Central and South Asia, Pakistan has a stagnant economy and a corruption problem. It wasn't a popular place for foreign investment, that is until China came along. In 2001, China offered to build a brand new port in the small fishing town of Gwadar. By 2018, the port, as well as a highway and railway networks, became a $62 billion corridor within the BRI. It's where the economic belt meets the maritime Silk Road. And it seemed to benefit both countries. Pakistan saw its highest GDP growth in eight years and forged a tight relationship with a major world power. China, on the other hand, secured a new alternative route for goods, especially oil and gas from the Middle East. Through projects like these, it also found a way to boost its economy. Chinese construction companies that had fewer opportunities within their own country saw a huge boost from BRI contracts. Seven out of the 10 biggest construction firms in the world are now Chinese. What tips the balance in China's favor even more is a requirement that it be involved in building these projects. In Pakistan, for example, Chinese workers have directly built projects like this highway here, and a Chinese firm has worked with locals on a railway here in Serbia. China's involvement is one of its very few demands, and that's set these deals apart so far. See, typically, to get investment from the West, countries have to meet strict ethical standards. But China's offered billions of dollars, mostly in loans, with far fewer conditions. So it's no surprise the BRI has been a big hit with the less democratic countries in the region. China has signed agreements with authoritarian governments, military regimes, and some of the most corrupt countries in the world. It's even affiliated with Afghanistan, Ukraine, Yemen, and Iraq, all currently splintered by conflict. Because of China's willingness to loan money to unreliable countries, many experts have called the BRI a risky plan. Eventually, these countries will have to pay China back, but corruption and conflict make that payback unlikely. A recent report found that many of the countries indebted to China are very vulnerable, including eight that are at high risk of being unable to pay. So why does China keep lending? Because there's more to the BRI than just economics. In Sri Lanka, China loaned about $1.5 billion for a new deep water port. It was a key stop on the Maritime Silk Road. By 2017, it was clear Sri Lanka couldn't pay back the loan, so instead they gave China control of the port as part of a 99-year lease. China also controls the strategic port in Pakistan, where it has a 40-year lease. It's pushing for a similar agreement in Myanmar, and it just opened an actual Chinese naval base in Djibouti. These are all signs of what's been called the String of Pearls theory. It predicts that China is trying to establish a string of naval bases in the Indian Ocean that will allow it to station ships and guard shipping routes that move through the region. So while China's not getting its money back, 
it's still achieving some very important strategic goals. China's growing influence challenges the status of the U.S., which has been the world's lone superpower for the last several decades. But isolation is trending in the U.S., meaning that they are investing less and therefore losing influence around the world. The BRI is China's way of leveraging power to become a global leader. By building relationships and taking control of global trade, China's well on its way. State Anthony Blinken and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin met with their counterparts in Japan today and will next head to South Korea as part of their first overseas trip. The meetings are widely viewed as an attempt by the Biden administration to secure allies in Washington's campaign to counter China's growing power. Blinken spoke earlier today in Japan. We're united uh, in the vision of a free and open Indo-Pacific region where countries follow the rules, cooperate whenever they can, and resolve their differences peacefully. And in particular, we will push back if necessary when China uses coercion or aggression to get its way. The Japanese foreign minister also spoke at the joint news conference. We agreed to oppose China's unilateral bid to change the status quo, including in the East China Sea and South China Sea, and shared concerns about China's Coast Guard laws. And this is Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, also speaking at the joint news conference. I know Japan shares our concerns with China's destabilization. And as I have said before, China is a pacing challenge for the Department of Defense. Last week, President Biden met virtually with the leaders of India, Japan and Australia in the first meeting of the so-called Quad, the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue. Beijing's accused the Quad of perpetuating a Cold War mentality. On Friday, Secretary of State Blinken and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan will meet with their Chinese counterparts in Alaska for the first direct talks between Beijing and the Biden administration. Earlier this month, Blinken described China as the the biggest geopolitical test of the 21st century for the United States. China is the only country with the economic, diplomatic, military and technological power to seriously challenge the stable and open international system, all the rules, values and relationships that make the world work the way we want it to, because it ultimately serves the interests and reflects the values of the American people. This comes as the United States and China are taking markedly different approaches to vaccines and the COVID pandemic. While the United States faces accusations of hoarding vaccines and blocking efforts to waive vaccine patent rights at the World Trade Organization, China's shipped millions of vaccine doses to nations in the global south in what's been described as a form of vaccine diplomacy. China sent free samples of Sinovax vaccine to 53 countries and has exported it to 22 nations that have placed orders. Recipients include Brazil, Mexico, Peru, Colombia, Ecuador and Bolivia. To talk more about the U.S.-China relations, we are joined by Vijay Prashad, director of the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research, author of many books, including The Poorer Nations, A Possible History of the Global South, his latest book, Washington Bullets, A History of the CIA Coups and Assassinations. He's a senior non-resident fellow 
fellow at Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies, Renmin University of China. His latest article for People's Dispatch is headlined, Biden Continues the U.S. Conflict with China Through the Quad. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, VJ. Let's begin right there with that headline. Um, can you talk about the Biden administration's approach to China, um, how it um, compares to Trump and what you see needs to happen and change? It's great to be back with you, Amy. The first thing I'd like to say is that there are deep continuities, not only between the Biden approach to China and the Trump approach, but also before that, the Obama approach, because Obama, after all, inaugurated something called the pivot to Asia. I just want to point something out, which is that, you know, when they say that China is a threat, as Antony Blinken said, in what I thought was a very sharp and rather bellicose speech, when he says China is a threat, what do they mean? I think here precision is important. They don't mean that China is a military threat to the United States. After all, the Chinese military has the capacity to defend its homeland, but is not in any way threatening the United States. In fact, it's U.S. naval vessels that are sailing very close to the Chinese mainland in so-called freedom of navigation, um, you know, sorties, right? close to, to Chinese territorial waters. So the Chinese don't have a military threat against the United States at all. What they're talking about has been very closely clarified um, in, at this Quad meeting, which is that the United States government understands that China's scientific and technological developments, particularly in robotics, in telecommunications, in green technology and so on, has far surpassed that of U.S. and European companies. And this is an existential threat as far as the United States is concerned, the U.S. government is concerned, to Silicon Valley. But China doesn't threaten the American citizen, the average American citizen, but Chinese telecommunication companies like Huawei and ZTE are perhaps a generation ahead of U.S. telecommunications companies. And rather than compete in a, as it were, free market with these companies, the United States government is using immense military pressure, diplomatic pressure, and a sort of information war uh, to push China back into its boundaries. It's one thing as far as the U.S. is concerned, Amy, uh, for China to deliver its workers to produce products for U.S. companies. It's quite another when Chinese companies are competing fair and square against U.S. companies. That's the real issue here. It's not human rights. It's not military pressure. It's not what Lloyd Austin, I think, quite gingerly called destabilization. That's not the issue. The main issue here is scientific and technological competition. And China, I'm afraid, as far as Silicon Valley is concerned, is ahead of the United States in that game. Uh, Vijay, I wanted to ask you about how China is covered in the uh, U.S. and the Western media. Uh, you mentioned the technological competition that often gets some play, but the main issues that the U.S. press seems to concentrate on are uh, the trade deficit with China, uh, the democracy movement in Hong Kong, or the fate of the Muslim Uyghurs uh, in China. N very little attention is played to China's uh, role as the principal um, a reducer of poverty in the world. Uh, today, there are about 112 million 
manufacturing workers uh, in China. Uh, that's more than the combined workforce, manufacturing workforce of the United States, Germany, France, Germany, Italy, and Japan combined. So what's happened over the last 30, 40 years is that China has lifted about 700 million people out of extreme poverty. Could you talk about the, this role of, of China as really changing the nature of the distribution in, in terms of, now, of course, American companies have benefited from that, from the low wages in China, but the Chinese people have also had an enormous change in their living standards as well, no? The first thing I'd like to respond to, Juan, is you mentioned the U.S. media. Look, frankly, most of the U.S. corporate media have become stenographers of the U.S. State Department. It, the credibility to have Mr. Mike Pompeo, former Secretary of State, uh, stand up there on behalf of the Muslims of China after what the United States has done in Afghanistan, in Iraq. And don't forget, Pompeo used to head the CIA. I mean, it strains credibility when the U.S. government is defending people in Hong Kong. Hong Kong, which was a colony of the British Empire for a hundred years and was ruled as a colony. Um, the British government now standing up for human rights and democracy. It's extraordinary that nobody asked the question about their own integrity on these questions. But let's leave that aside. Yes, it's certainly true that as far as a developing country is concerned, um, China has played an extraordinary role in, you know, uh, producing the ability for the Chinese people to lift themselves out of poverty. Let, let's be clear about one thing. China had the longest Second World War on the planet. It started in 1937, ended in 1949. That's years more than the Second World War in Europe. The country was devastated when the Chinese communists took power in 1950. Very serious battle to end poverty. And they didn't do it merely by transfer payments, by cash payments. They did it by improving social indicators, by improving healthcare, literacy, education in general, and so on. This is an enormous, enormous feat that they've done by lifting, as you say, 700 million people out of poverty. This should be the headline, but it's not. And even more so, you know, Amy, you're quite right to mention what's being called vaccine uh, diplomacy rather than the vaccine nationalism we're seeing in North America, Canada, where, where, for instance, there's double the number of vaccine doses needed. And Canada shamefully has uh, taken vaccine out of the COFAX you know, uh, vaccine fund, which is supposed to provide vaccines to developing countries. Yes, China is producing a kind of vaccine um, diplomacy rather than vaccine nationalism. But more than that, Chinese medical personnel like Cuban medical personnel have been going around the world assisting countries in combating COVID-19. You know, we are all for the Cuban doctors to get the Nobel Peace Prize this year, but we should also recognize the number of Chinese doctors who have been overseas uh, providing assistance in the global south. Recently, even the Atlantic magazine ran a story to show that the myth of the Chinese debt trap needs to be called into question. In other words, China has been lending enormous amounts of money for development purposes in the global south in countries like Bolivia, where the United States has come in with a project called American Creche, trying to undercut Chinese investments by bringing in U.S. private sector investments and strong-arming countries, as we saw in El Salvador, strong-arming the government, saying if you don't take American money and cut the Chinese out, we're going to give, make great trouble for you. 
I mean, this is old-fashioned gunboat diplomacy, and people need to see it for what it is. If we're going to talk about human rights, what about the human rights of the people of El Salvador to craft their own foreign policy? Why should they be dictated to by Washington, D.C.? We've just heard clips today, starting with a TED Talk by Graham Allison on the cycle of forces pushing the U.S. and China toward war. Worldly discussed the reorientation of the U.S. foreign policy mindset around the rise of China. The East is a podcast looked at the history of the so-called century of humiliation in China. Now This World explained the Belt and Road Project in Africa, while Vox looked at Afghanistan and the String of Pearls theory before Democracy Now! looked at China's economic development and compared it to the U.S.'s actions. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips from China Talk, which discussed U.S. policy in the context of and in contrast to China, and Economics and Beyond with Rob Johnson explaining that there are really no clear-cut, simple answers when it comes to understanding the story of China's rise in the wake of Western stagnation, and then you throw COVID on top and ugh. For non-members, those bonus clips are linked in the show notes and are part of the transcript for today's episode, so you can still find them if you make the effort. But to hear that and all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com support, or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now, we'll hear from you. And in addition to the fact that you aggregate and amplify and curate this content, et cetera, if, if you didn't have donors, then this couldn't be your job and people's jobs, and then therefore it wouldn't get done. <laughs> so this idea that you should just be happy with what you have is, is just ridiculous on its face, because if you don't have a sustainable level of support and funding for the show and the show doesn't get made so it, it just implies that like you use a computer program to do all the work for the show in like 20 minutes or something and then just hit post and then you want to just like sit back and collect money on that but i think that person who wrote to you doesn't realize sadly how many hours and all the work and all the research and everything else that goes into these curation episodes that are, are each episode so i don't know i got mad when i heard that comment you keep your calm and address these things much more calmly than i probably would uh, if someone was attacking my life's work in that way so anyway stay awesome jay jay thank you so much for that podcast episode i just heard uh, episode number 1358 i'm not sure how i missed it uh, looks like it was aired originally in on july 20th 2020 it may have been a time frame when i wasn't listening but just just so you know who i am uh, this is kwai I've, I've commented a couple of times before and i actually got to meet you face to face when you did that town hall thing dr 
Ray, and you were in one of my, you were at my table at one point, and so it was a pleasure to see you in, in person. But this episode number 1358 was amazing, and I, I know you gave a lot of apologies about how it's going to seem like a soap opera, and that's the way these things can be, and I had no problem with that at all. What I loved about it was the fact that you started out with this woman who who seemed on the surface of it to not really know what she was talking about just because of the way the, the, the podcaster that you're quoting presented it. And, but you did the work. You did the looking into the, the actual context and where she was coming from and, and what the, the politics were around it and, and the racial context and the way you explain things. And just so you know, I'm a black man. Uh, I probably didn't mention that before and you may not be able to tell by my voice. And anti-racism is, is very important to me, not just because I'm a black man, but because I'm also interested in social justice of all kinds. And the way you explain things so clearly and so concisely, and you got all the nuance right, and I really want to thank you for it. It, it really touched me. And I'm so glad. I don't know what, your, what percentage of your audience is, is black, but... Uh, I imagine I'm not the only one that felt good about this episode. But anyway, I just wanted to, to say congratulations on that episode, and I loved it, loved it, loved it. It's, my, I think, my favorite episode ever. The systems of power, I think, is what it's all about, including racism, including patriarchy, homophobia, transphobia, and all the things. It's all about power and how power protects itself. It's key for all of us to know, no matter what side of any particular power equation we fall on. So thanks so much, Jay, and uh, keep up the excellent work. Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestofleft.com. Thanks to the callers we just heard from. Thanks to Nick for his uh, supportive comment. I gotta say, yes, I was frustrated. I was frustrated when I got the message very much downplaying what the show and by extension I do and the work that goes into it and all of that. But I honestly wasn't mad. And it's because it really wasn't that long ago that my understanding of these concepts were not that far off from from the caller. And so I had the sense like, look, he's probably not the only one since I was sort of in that camp and I bet a bunch of people are in that camp. I thought, look, okay, I will respond with some education, but it's an education that I needed too. You know, it wasn't until the last few years that I began to get a good sense of it, but doing this research has helped me dive in even more and understand the concept of curation even better and and the fact that there are people who think deeply about it and explain it to other people and explain the the urgent need and uh, high value of it i was like geez what am, what am i a hero I, I i didn't realize this this was so important like i had the sense like it was a good thing but ugh, they're like effusive in in their praise of curation and curators and and the high 
technical and intellectual and problem solving and non-lateral thinking and, and on and on. I just whoa, I'm starting to blush doing that research. So I, I do have more to add on that topic. I'm going to come back with another uh, you know lesson or two on the importance of curation, but. That's for another day. Uh, also, thanks to Kwai. I'm, I'm really glad that episode was helpful to him. He, he was referring to the episode. Uh, it was a repost that I put out recently titled How a System of Power Defends Itself. And it was a very irregular episode that no one would accuse me of just pulling clips from other places. Clearly, well, I, I hope clearly a whole lot of work went into that one. That was all original. <laughs> that was a that was a J original, that one. So I'm, I'm glad that Kwai got a lot of value out of it, and I hope that everyone had a chance to listen to it, which is why I reposted it. I was hoping that people would. And then finally, I regret that I didn't mention this in the previous episode about surveillance capitalism. I clarified at the end some of Shoshana Zuboff's intentions, but I completely failed to clarify what you as an individual might be able to do about it. Amanda has been on medical leave for a while now. Medical leave meaning she's physically well enough to do work, but is so consumed by dealing with the American healthcare system that she hasn't had time to do any activism segments in a while. So we didn't have an activism segment on surveillance capitalism. And what I would really just direct you to is humanetech.com. That's the website of the Center for Humane Technology. They are, are some of the people who spearheaded the Social Dilemma documentary on Netflix, which, you know, obviously got a lot of play and a lot of people saw that. So I recommend watching that movie as well. But in terms of getting involved, that's a place to sign up, be on their email list, and then engage at whatever level, whatever depth you are able to with the activities, the discussions, the, you know, whatever activism they may send out, calling legislators and organizing around calls for regulation and, uh, and, and, you know, from sort of being directed both at the policy world and also at the Silicon Valley world. This can go in, in many different directions, and it has to. Concerns about and solutions to surveillance capitalism need to be shouted from the rooftops in all directions toward all major players with the ability to make change at all times. So humanetech.com is really the best place to start. So go there. That is going to be it for today. Keep the comments coming. As always, you can call us at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. We just had a brand new one post for the members. Amanda had a very thoughtful primal scream about her experience with the healthcare system, and then that flowed into a discussion of more broadly sort of flowing from surveillance capitalism and the atomization of people and about the ways that the way technology is threatening democracy isn't 
necessarily a straight line because it's not just that algorithms are pushing people toward toxic content that radicalizes them to believe in conspiracy theories, but it also contributes to the society-wide problem we already had about an epidemic of loneliness, which actually sort of tills the ground and makes it fertile for people to be duped into believing in conspiracy theories and then accidentally overthrowing democracy if they were allowed to take their ideas to the logical conclusion. So people are definitely going to want to check that out. It'll be right in your feed as soon as you sign up for a membership. Thanks also, of course, to Ben, Dan, and Ken for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. And thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, web mastering, bonus show co-hosting, and so forth. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com support, as that is absolutely how the program survives. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly. Thanks entirely entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.